Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Bree Fallon and with me is... Dave McConaughey. This week we have an episode that you recorded, Dave, together with Robin Veldman on understanding evangelical opposition to climate action. Can you tell us a little bit about this episode before we listen in? I'd love to. You know, evangelicals do not oppose climate change for the reasons that we think they do. There is a common misperception that evangelical beliefs about the end times, that in the premillennial fashion that most evangelicals in the United States follow, that their lack of concern for this world in favor of otherworldly concerns means that they don't think about the environment. And that's actually not the case, Robin Veldman says, and that we do a disservice to the narrative about climate change by misunderstanding the ways in which evangelicals think about the environment. And her ethnographic research uh, in the South of the United States is really informative for trying to understand how we can work with evangelicals in the ways that they do think about the environment in order to enact the major changes that are going to be needed going forward about evangelical relationships that will allow us to make the kind of progress that we need on climate change. So I'm thrilled to share this because I think we all agree at the RSP here that climate change is a really big issue and that understanding the different factors that go into evangelical opposition to climate change are going to be really important in order to building coalitions and cooperations in the future. You're 100% correct. It's only by understanding other points of view that we're going to be able to tackle climate change from all directions. So without further ado, let's listen in. Welcome. My name is David McConaughey, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Robin Veldman, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Texas A&M University, Associate Editor for the Journal for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture, and author of The Gospel of Climate Skepticism, Why Evangelical Christians Oppose Action on Climate Change. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project, Dr. Veldman. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Now, I think for a lot of us, studying climate change in the current moment of glacial ice melt and rising annual temperatures and more aggressive storms, there's almost two feet of snow outside my, <laughs> my house right now, mm-hmm. that this seems obvious to, to us in a way, even when it's not obvious within religious studies. So how did you come to the project and your focus on climate skepticism? Oh, yeah. Um, good question. So I was actually my undergraduate major was in environmental studies. And um, I had taken one class in religion and ecology, uh, strangely enough, happened to be offered. And but I, you know, I didn't really think about that a lot. Um, my main focus was on environmental issues. And uh, so when I eventually decided to go back and study religion, there, by that point was a program in, at the University of Florida for the study of religion and nature um, that allowed me to go back to that interest. I mean, I'd always, because I was taking environmental studies and environmental science classes, I knew that climate change was a big issue, maybe a little bit before or maybe with a little bit more urgency than you might have in the the rest of the 
the American public and I had worked for an environmental lobbyist and I had a lot of friends who were in the environmental community. So I think it was really top on my radar. Um, but how I got into studying evangelicals was a little bit more, um, I kind of stumbled into it backwards, I would say. It wasn't my intention at all. And I still am a little, you know, <laughs> I never would have predicted it, that it would go in that direction. Um, I was really interested in environmental apocalypticism because I knew a lot of environmentalists who were fairly apocalyptic. And a lot of people think that apocalypticism leads to apathy, um, which um, you'll see where my fixation with apathy comes from. Um, but uh, you know, I knew that it was not, in fact, it was the opposite. It can be really transformative just from my experience personally and knowing people around me. So my master's thesis was exploring environmental apocalypticism and thinking through whether it's ties to religion. It's generally been used as a way of, um, opponents of environmentalists tend to say, Oh, you're just a bunch of doomsday prophets. And I wanted to push back against that. And in the course of doing that research, I somehow came across, I, I can't pinpoint the exact moment, but people started telling me uh, like, oh, you know, who you should really be looking at if you're thinking about apocalypticism is all these evangelicals. And somebody, you know, pointed me to an article talking about around that time, Bill Moyers um, had given a speech called Welcome to Doomsday, where he was uh, highlighting the idea that the Bush administration's slow walking on climate change was rooted in his evangelical Christian supporters that they were kind of the fuel behind the, the fire of climate delay there. Um, and so, so yeah, I just, I got into it because I was interested in apocalypticism and people were like, that's who you have to study if you're interested in apocalypticism. It wasn't because I was, you know, someone who had done tons of research on evangelicalism or even, you know, evangelicalism in American history or, or anything. I, I came in through a side door. I think as, as we'll see, one of your main findings is that, even if you had studied evangelicalism and had been in the trenches with evangelicals, you might not ever have found your way to environmentalism and, and climate skepticism as a major concern. When you came to find the groups that were the focus of your research, you know, who, who were they and, and how did you arrive at, at the choice of those individuals to form your study? Yeah, well, um, some of it was strategic and some of it was pragmatic. I Part of it is related to uh, just where it made sense to be doing my research. And it was the place where I was working in Georgia was fairly close to Gainesville, Florida, which is where my graduate program is. So that, you know, but it wasn't just in the region around Gainesville, which because it's a major university town, it, you know, those churches get studied quite a bit. Um, so it was good in, in a sense that it was sort of a little bit further off a field and it wasn't a place I was particularly familiar with. Then, you know, I perhaps this is revealing too much about my naivete, but when I went into the field, I was like, okay, I have this plan. I'm going to study evangelicals. And I was like, wait, how do I find them? And I went back and was like, wait, how do people define evangelicals? And I had this whole, sorry, I can hear you're laughing and probably everyone else is like, who are you? But, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> laughing because that that's such a familiar problem to me. Exactly. I had to go through that whole transformation of going back to the social scientific literature and the historical literature and being like, okay, who exactly are you talking about? Which denominations are you talking about? Which churches do I actually go and visit? 
you know, and, um, I, you know, I had some conversations with my committee members <laughs> and stuff about, about how to identify churches. And then I ended up going with some work, um, you know, political scientists, I think have some of the more sophisticated work on identifying evangelicals and they have useful tables that lay out different denominations and coding schemes and all that. So I kind of got pulled into the, the political science research or I, I found it very useful for identifying groups, but you know, I, my work in some ways is similar to Catherine Wilkinson's. She wrote um, a book between God and green, which was, I like to, I think of her work as like part one and mine is kind of part two. <laughs> she, her book is about uh, the promise of evangelical climate activism. And then my book is about why that promise didn't materialize. So, you know, both of us did focus groups among uh, an assortment of evangelical churches. And it, I didn't do it based on self-identification because not all evangel- people that scholars regard as evangelical identify self-identify as evangelical, but I reached out to some fundamentalists, some that were Church of Christ, one Pentecostal denomination. As I mentioned in the book, I also talked to Seventh-day Adventists. And I tried to get ones that were, oh, Church of God. You know, I was looking for denominations that were in a mix of locations. So not just small towns. Some of them were very, very small town uh, or rural areas and others were in a bigger city. So um, I kind of wanted to mix, you know, it's a little bit of a fiction in a way that's created in the media when people talk about evangelicals as one group because it's a whole assortment of different denominations and so in order to kind of replicate i guess that fiction i also wanted to have a mix of groups to make sure i wasn't just getting you know a particular denominational perspective i think in this post trump moment when we've had the last 4 years of news articles trying to describe why quote, evangelicals support Trump, right? And why they continue to support him. I think we are all a lot more sensitive to these boundaries and the power that they hold for us. One of the things that struck me about the sensitivity with which you approached this was the effort that you went through to try to, even in a limited geographical area, to diversify the perspectives. And then what it ended up revealing to the reader was that even in groups that appeared from the outside, perhaps that kind of political science designation, to be very similar or that you might cast as a a single group of evangelicals, that you could actually distinguish between their views of environmentalism in in quite striking ways that would show them on opposite ends of um, the cool or hot uh, scale, as you describe it later in the text. What stands out to me thinking back about it years later is just how pervasive like climate skepticism was at that point. Um, I mean, I went into it looking in particular at end time beliefs um, and wondering whether that was a driver, because as I mentioned, you know, I brought up Bill Moyers he had this speech that he gave for Harvard Environmental Citizens Award, where he talked about fundamentalism, or, you know, he, of course, people use different terms, I I believe, I want to say he used the word fundamentalism, but, um, you know, fundamentalists and evangelicals being these people who didn't care that the earth was about to go in flames, or, you know, be overtaken by global warming, because they think that, the end is near anyway. And so, I mean, that was my real motivation for, in addition to trying to get this cross section of evangelicalism, I also wanted to get a little bit of variation in terms of end time beliefs. 
in order to see if that was having as big of an influence as people like Bill Moyers. And he's not the only one. As I eventually ended up describing in the book, there's so so many environmentalists do think that evangelicals are apathetic because they believe Jesus is coming back. It's really a widespread belief. You know, there's lots of evangelicals who who find that to be credible as well. But that was kind of my question going in. It chastened me, I'll say, <laughs> because I, I had previously used one of the major pieces of literature that you repeatedly kind of debunk or at least cite as being less influential in the pews than we might imagine it to be. And that's Lynn White's uh, piece. Um, and, and so I had used it in a course about environmental ethics, and we had used it to kind of contrast things that were happening in the 1970s in this particular course globally at that moment. You suggest, though, that the perception that has been one of the narratives about evangelicals that they don't care about climate change because they're uh, apocalyptic views about the end times mean that they are apathetic towards the climate because it's out of their concern. That turned out to be much less central to the climate skepticism of evangelicals than we might have believed. So how, how did you get to bust that myth? I use this method of grounded theory where you're kind of constantly building theory and then testing it against the data that you encounter in the field. So, I mean, that really is how my inquiry progressed. I would say, you know, I was inspired by trying to understand the role of end time beliefs. But like you mentioned, probably even the more common perception that people have is just Christian anthropocentrism is a reason that evangelicals don't care about the environment. Um, So, but both of those narratives kind of work together. You know, if it's not the Christian story of the origins, then it must be the Christian story of the apocalypse. One of those two must be driving apathy. And it's interesting because that kind of directs your attention towards evangelical religiosity, some feature of their theology or religious practice that is key in undermining environmental concern and away from you know, other really powerful things that are happening, which is what I ended up making more sense of or or finding to be more influential when I went into the field. Your sense of end times apathy as the theological source for climate skepticism did not pan out. Is that right? I mean, a lot of people have studied apocalypticism as it's lived in everyday life. And they find that it's difficult to sustain over time for long periods, like intense apocalypticism, the kind where you're selling your possessions, right, and not planning for the future. And so I knew that there was the possibility, in a sense, that this apocalypticism was not as powerful as people thought it was. On the other hand, I was also reading stuff, anthropological and sociological literature about climate change attitudes and understanding that these attitudes can be woven into people's everyday lives rather than simply, you know, I don't know, they're reading some IPCC assessment report or something like that. So I think both of those things were in the back of my mind that I wanted to probe beyond the notion that evangelicals attitudes about the environment are just theologically driven. I wanted to see how it looked in practice. And that's part of a trend within my subfield, the study of religion and ecology and nature where people have said, okay, we've looked at the theological resources within these traditions, and people have been arguing for decades about what they should teach their believers, essentially, or scholars have been mining the world's religions for their ecological insights, but what do they actually teach in practice? So I was also part of this empirical turn, or that's how I was trained within my subfield. I began my inquiry 
timidly and with great fear, (laughs) calling up pastors and saying, hey, I have this project. I'd love to talk to you. And pretty early on, I realized I, I just shouldn't mention the environment. And so because it kind of predisposed the conversation to it, it, it's too tricky and controversial of an issue to bring up when you don't even know somebody. So I started saying, okay, I would love to talk to you about your your teachings and your social ethics. And for those pastors that agreed, I went and I met with them and I interviewed them and you know I observed their layout. <laughs> and they became the the gatekeepers and and many of them agreed to help me set up focus groups where then I would spend time talking to people more in depth again about views about more generally we always started the conversation talking about christian views on social issues you know kind of in a more neutral as i understood it direction i didn't explicitly bring up end times till kind of later in the conversation i sort of let it let it develop but i did build in in a very sort of simplistic way into my study design this separation between premillennial Christians and amillennial Christians. And as an outsider to the evangelical community and somebody who did not have, you know, seminary training or advanced theological training at all, it took me a long time to understand these teachings and why they mattered. Because they matter in a social way. They kind of correspond to social divisions within evangelicalism, but they they also of course matter for theological reasons. And for a long time when I went in, when I began my research, I, I thought of amillennialism as this neutral position. I thought of it as like kind of like a holder, a blank kind of non non millennialism. I guess I would say. At some point in my research, I realized that that was not a really an adequate explanation. Um, I had to make sense of the fact that, of course, my for- informants, the people that I spoke with, didn't think about things in the same way that theologians do, or you know, people who are trained in seminary. So that was one division. Um, but then also just the the way that people would talk about end time beliefs and amillennialism was not as I, I basically had to had to let go of the theological categories that, that I walked in with and realize that that's just not how it works on the ground. And that's um, you know, as much as you know people who are trying to educate Christ, Christians would like it to be, it, it wasn't for the purposes of understanding particularly climate change, it wasn't the relevant criteria. And so that's where I I started uh, noticing. Okay, well, some people are like they light up when we start talking about the end times. They love it. They're super into it, and it's something I recognized because I had studied environmentalists and environmental apocalypticism, and I know that feeling myself. That you can see a beautiful potential in the apocalypse, and it's very strange because the apocalypse. And it's now when I think back on it, I'm kind of horrified that I ever had that view, but. I, I do think it's very possible to to think that there's things are terrible now, but there's going to be a transition and they're going to get much better. So I noticed, you know, that some people were just really quick to jump on that topic, and they were happy to say, or it was it was pretty simple for them to be like, "Oh yeah, climate change is just another one of those signs that that, that the Lord is coming back, and you know, all of these bad things that we see now are going to be reversed." But they were kind of a minority within the community and almost everybody else had this com- were like hold on there <laughs> in fact you know the you know, we don't know the day and the hour um, as christians were called to you know live in this world and not get caught up in that kind of in end times 
fervor. So I saw through my research and had to come to terms with the fact that the theological categories didn't really map onto the social reality that I was encountering. And so I just, you know, (laughs) as a good scholar, just decided to create my own terms to kind of better capture what I was seeing, which, you know, ended up being hot millennialism and cool millennialism. I'm feeling very drawn into the way that you had to negotiate with your research subjects about how to approach the issues that you wanted to get to. But what's striking about that is that your use of their positions about social ethics ultimately is reflected in a way by your major finding, which is that the sense of embattlement against secular culture was perhaps the largest determinant of a general uh, climate skepticism. Can you say a little bit more about this pervasive sense of embattlement with secular culture that you found? Definitely. So I guess I'll just put it in the context of how I fig- I came to this conclusion. I was doing my focus groups, and I described this in the book as well, but you know, I had about a I think seven or eight months of focus groups behind me. And I was kind of like, I don't see any patterns here. Everybody's a skeptic. Everybody thinks they're called to care for creation at the same time, but they're skeptical about climate change. I've just, (laughs) I just don't know what I have to say about this. You know, it's just like, okay, they're skeptics. I don't know why. In the meantime, I had scheduled a focus group with Seventh-day Adventists and they are not necessarily considered to be evangelicals and they're not members of NAE and they don't see themselves as evangelicals, but they're big end time believers. So I was, as I was planning my research, thinking to myself, well, I can't just ignore some of the groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists who would be the most obvious participants in this study. I have to kind of see what their views are. And I, you know, went into this focus group at a Seventh Day Adventist church. It was it was in a unique church compared to my to my evangelical churches because it was um, racially mixed in a way that the evangelical churches, except for the Assemblies of God Church, were not. And there were also people who were a few people were immigrants, um, and so it was just a really different demographic setup. But it also was different in terms of the the attitude. And I just noticed immediately right from the beginning that I didn't have this sense of hostility because when I started talking about asking my evangelical informants about environmental issues, I mean, I did not present myself as an environmentalist, even though I do identify as an environmentalist, because I I knew that that would be um, would make it really uncomfortable situation for them to talk about their attitudes and, and beliefs. And but after I I finished doing the evangelical focus groups, I always was just incredibly exhausted with all of the things that they would say about environmentalism, and their their views were largely negative in a way that a lot of times I, I thought was um, based on misperceptions. But I also, you know, of course, many environmentalists have misperceptions about evangelicals, so I don't necessarily blame them for it. I just personally found it really, um, it was a lot to take in. And and the Seventh-day Adventist focus group was, had a really, it just had a really different tone to it. They From the beginning, they were like, yeah, you know, we see this as part of our environmental concern as just working with the Seventh-day Adventist's long-standing em- embrace of, of health and health concerns. And there just wasn't that same sense of opposition and apathy. And, I'm, you know, of course, that's just one focus group among Seventh-day Adventists. I'm not saying all Seventh-day Adventists are environmentalists 
or anything like that. But, you know, as I talked to them more, I realized that their, their tradition was, there was support at the level of leadership for environmental, some levels of environmental concern. And they had even talked about how do we um, frame our, our theological beliefs about the end times? How do, how do we put those into conversation with the need for environmental sustainability? So they were already thinking about how do we temper end times theology in relation to the environment. So it just struck me that it was that it wasn't the theology. I mean, the theology was different, but it wasn't that they, you know, it wasn't a matter. The end times were not what was making the difference because this was a group that was, you know, the end times was a big part of their denomination and their teachings. And in fact, what seemed to be the bigger divide between the Seventh-day Adventists and the evangelicals was just the attitude and the tone and the overwhelming sense of hostility and anger that my evangelical informants had and so I went back and I kind of looked, I had started all of the focus groups by saying, asking my informants to say, to talk about um, kind of as an icebreaker, what is it that you feel your your church and your tradition gives to society? And then, you know, conversely, what are some challenges that your tradition faces? So I heard when, when I got to the part about challenges, they started people would say, oh, well, they're not allowing us to teach the Bible in public schools and you know, Christians are under attack and and all these things that to me, you know, being an outsider to the evangelical community, I was really unaware of that. That was not on my radar at all that, that there was this perception that Christianity was under attack. And I started to realize that that same sense of embattlement was really connected to how they thought about climate change. Not for everybody, of course, but I just heard this theme over and over again when I went back, looked at the transcripts, that there was a sense that climate activists and people who were talking about climate change were, in fact, in saying that human activities were potentially impacting the planet on a global scale, that they were, in fact, not saying that just because that was the science said. No, it was they were saying it because they were cooking this up in order to go against Christian teachings about God's omnipotence. And so there was this kind of sense that it was part of a larger, I, I don't know if plot is too strong of a word, but um, a larger campaign to push Christianity out of the public square. And then I, you know, soon after that, you know, I went back to my notes and I saw, I read a, where, um, my notes on Christian Smith's work where he had talked about evangelicalism being fueled by its sense of embattlement with secular culture. It was totally that aha moment where I was like, oh, okay, this is not like something I'm seeing. This is part of evangelical culture in general. And it, it is definitely shaping at least how my informants in Georgia, you know, not necessarily globally, but it's shaping how they're looking at climate change. I found that the heart of the next portion of your book explained the mechanism that sustained this embattlement over decades of pretty concerted effort uh, to be the role of mass media uh, in evangelical communities. Can you say a little bit about the role that people like Jerry Falwell and the 700 Club and CBN, uh, the Christian Broadcasting Network, how these amplified the skepticism and and really perpetuated this narrative of 
uh, and I think it's appropriate to call it anti-intellectualism following Richard Hofstetter, as well as a kind of a sincere incredulity about expertise, right? That um, science is okay, but science on this particular area is entirely suspect because it does not correlate with what we see as the biblical injunctions for the relationship of God and earth. I think we've all driven around the country and flipped past the Christian radio station, and we all know that they exist. You know, you've heard those television televangelists on TV, and you know, we've all seen those channels. Some of us have watched them, but I never thought of it as. Um, I didn't have a sense of how 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 powerful it is. So, and it wasn't even on my radar at all that media or radio. I mean, media. Yes, I know media is influential, and there. By the time I was doing my field research, I had I had already seen studies coming out showing that. You know, Fox News was far more likely to uh, have climate skeptics as guests on its programs and suggesting that this was one reason why we're seeing this growing partisan divide on climate change. So I knew media was important, um, but the existence of evangelical mass media, which is the term that communication scholars use, or they also call it the electronic church, um, the fact that that might be important was definitely not on my radar and I only kind of discovered it by accident but what I learned was evangelicalism is a very decentralized tradition as you know we've talked about it most people kind of know there's there's no pope of evangelicalism there's a, a lot of different players within it and so and there's a lot of different um group that are grouped under the evangelical tradition you know at least by scholars the charismatics and Pentecostals and neo-Pentecostals and and uh, fundamentalists and self-identified evangelicals all are oftentimes grouped under this larger heading of evangelicalism. But for evangelicalism to have a coherent culture, it's and I'm drawing here on the work of Mark Ward Sr. He is a communication scholar whose work I have found to be incredibly helpful. He's um, a long someone with longtime uh, work experience as well in the media industry. Christian media ends up being one of the factors that kind of weaves all these disparate evangelical groups into a coherent subculture. It's, you know, those those radio programs on Christian radio or on Christian television are a means of kind of creating a shared reality and 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 paying attention to news items in particular that are of interest to specifically to evangelicals. You know, of course, every religious group, you know, most religious traditions have some kind of news service, right? Or, or even, you know, cultural groups oftentimes, right? Because every different group is going to take different things out of the news. If you're Muslim, you might want to know about examples of, of anti-Muslim, you know, people, violence happening or, or something like that. People just have different, different things they want to take out of the news. So it makes sense that evangelicals would have their own news and media. And of course, it's also been used to spread the good news. Originally, the adoption of radio as a means of preaching was in large part to reach new reach new potential followers to join the movement. So it's not, you know, super surprising that evangelicals would have this, that they would have developed this this media. And they're they're a large enough tradition in the United States that it ends up being actually pretty powerful. And it has become this in fact, kind of social institution that unites evangelicalism into a coherent subculture. As you mentioned, I would say that anti-intellectualism has been a kind of mainstay. And I think this is coming to be understood. I think we'll see more work about this in the future as we've kind of seen some of the implications of it. But it has, it has been kind of a, a questioning of the mainstream consensus 
on a lot of issues has been very, very common. Mark Ward Sr. has also done some work on this showing how it's it happens not only at the level of media, but at the level of lay churches. Because evangelicalism emphasizes, you know, it's a kind of a, a tradition of the heart and using the individual believer's understanding and inspir- inspired understanding of scripture um, more so than these kind of, you know, erudite, lofty, ivory tower people. So it's a longstanding element of the tradition. And it's one that in the as evangelicals, many evangelicals have moved to the political right and in the from the 1980s on, I would say it's an element that has proven its political utility for particular issues because we live in a modern world where many decisions require expertise. And so they rely on experts who are intellectuals. And when you have a tradition where anti-intellectualism for religious reasons, and I, I wouldn't question at all the sincerity of that is built into the tradition or even the the significance of it. But when you have this tradition that has become much more politically engaged, then you see it start to be used in political circumstances. And that's really what I sort of accidentally uncovered with what was happening with climate change. I started, I was kind of looking for some concluding words, (laughs) I thought to say about my, uh, you know, to kind of put a a bookend on my discussion or my findings from the field research. So I was looking up what leaders in the Christian right had said about climate change, because I knew that they were the ones who were primarily opposed to climate activism. And then I you know, started getting all these Google hits from their websites of their um, radio ministries and realizing, oh, wait, they talked about it. And they didn't just do it once. They talked about it a lot. <laughs> and when they gave these broadcasts, they we're also talking about it in the same terms that my informants were talking about it. A number of major leaders in the Christian right were talking about climate change, and they were linking it specifically to a religious narrative and presenting skepticism as the more biblical position on climate change, just in various ways, shapes, and forms. And they were also transmitting misinformation about climate change as they were doing so. And they would talk about it very derisively and mockingly, like, I can't believe that this person would believe that, you know, of course, those climate advocates are trying to blah, 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 you know, and I I know that it sounds like I'm mocking them in saying that. But if you go listen, that is the tone that they use, it it is a, a mocking tone. And that is a tool of outreach media. As I started to realize that that many leaders in the Christian right had been talking about climate change, I just kept looking for more and more examples and realized that it was something that had the potential to be pretty impactful in terms of how lay evangelicals might think about climate change. Because, of course, not every you know evangelical listens to Christian radio, but even if you don't listen to it, a lot of people around you might, your pastor might. So it it has a sense of kind of um, or has the ability to transmit values and especially to transmit normative values. So to give you the impression that everybody around you thinks this way, and this is the right way to think. And I did hear over and over again in my interviews that people who were concerned about climate change felt that they had to stay in the closet about it. It was, it was, they felt it was socially risky to come out and and say anything about it. And I think the media really helped convey that sense that you're ta- you're going to take a risk people might look cross-eyed at you if you start taking up this liberal left-wing issue that all of our secularist enemies are embracing 
it's such a powerful mechanism by which to describe both the boundary making that these evangelicals utilized in order to establish the differences between the insiders and the outsiders that they were talking about. That mechanism is also so pervasive while also being hidden. I, mm. I think as you know, someone that, like you, tries to follow and monitor and study this, this element, I think it's really easy for for other observers inside the U.S. who are different religiously or outside of the U.S. who simply can't <laughs> can't really understand what what's happening with American evangelicalism in this way to to realize that this is an an instance of two separate worlds that are not overlapping. If you have a goal in your in your future research for continuing to kind of work with these issues, what would you say that the that the next the next stage of thing is, is going to be for you? What direction is, is this going to push you in now? There was one part of my research, one aspect, one little nagging thing that I could never quite pin down. And that was that the timing of the rise in religious climate skepticism was intriguing to me. It was it happened between 2011 and 2013. It wasn't only correlated with what people in the Christian right were saying. I can't, I can't say that Christian radio and Christian television were the only factors. There must have been some other factor contributing to it. And so this has led me in a new direction of trying to understand larger media narratives that evangelicals or political conservatives also consume. I'm not trying to conflate evangelicals with political conservatives, but approach this similar question about what drives climate skepticism, looking at media consumption in particular around the theme of Christian nationalism. And so I've been diving into what Glenn Beck and David Barton have been saying about climate change and what they had been saying about climate change kind of when I was in the field. I am trying to understand the role of misinformation, but also the the power of the medium through which that misinformation is transmitted to generate a shared sense of values and collective identity that leads to these really counterproductive outcomes that, in fact, are worse for everybody involved globally, but seem to satisfy certain identity interests. I can't wait to hear that next level of analysis, the one that you provided here about the kind of origins and the development of the groups and the figures that supported them is so enlightening. I, I really do recommend to all of our listeners to go and, and find a copy of the Gospel of Climate Skepticism. Thank you so much, Dr. Veldman, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and your expertise on this. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To follow us on social media, head to Facebook at the Religious Studies Project or follow us on Twitter at, at Project RS. If you would like to support us, we really appreciate a few dollars a month or a few pounds if you are abroad. We absolutely need your support. And the best way to do that is to hop over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash project RS and give us a cup of coffee each month. Coffee makes the academic world go around, but so does money. And we need it to make sure that servers and websites and all sorts of technical things keep us running. We also would love it if you visited our website at religiousstudiesproject.com and one of the things that you can find there is our Amazon affiliate links where you can do your shopping, where you can buy what you need from Amazon, and 
a small portion of what you have purchased, not affecting the price of the item, but this is just Amazon's way of allowing us to kind of have a foot in the door. And those financial incentives are really important for us, and we appreciate your support for them. Your peanut butter can keep us on the air. But until next time, all that's left to say is, thanks thanks for for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.